If you have your Bible, please turn to Esther chapter 4. We're going to be moving through this chapter today. And uh, let me go back and give a little bit of review in case you are new here or in case you've forgotten or didn't hear one of the earlier sermons. We're taking the book of Esther, which is, if, if you'll remember... We started in Ezra, we got to chapter 6, and there's about a 70-year period of time between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7 in which, historically, Esther falls, and the whole story of the deliverance of the Jewish people from uh, wickedness and utter destruction, and and then after Esther, we go back and finish Ezra, and then if um, the Lord doesn't come back, before, we'll also pursue the book of Nehemiah. So, let me go back and just review very quickly. Chapter 1, what was chapter 1 all about? I'm going to try to alliterate as much as I can to help you remember. Chapter 1 was about a drunken and despicable king who was driven by his flesh. Remember a couple of weeks ago, guys, I shared with you the three G's, the things that will always get you. If you don't, watch out. Gold, glory, and girls. And this guy was consumed with pursuing all of those. But chapter 1 also has another character, not only a drunken and despicable king, but also a disgraced and deposed queen. And we're not sure about exactly what motivated her, not motivated not not to show up for King Xerxes' party. Was she dignified or was she a diva? We, We really don't know, but she didn't show up and she was deposed. Then we transition into chapter two and we're introduced to a beautiful, let me say it this way, going back to review, a beautiful but clueless damsel. Now remember, she was probably in her teens when this happened. So small wonder. Not only were we introduced to her, Esther, Hadassah, but also to her devoted but dense parent. An adoptive parent is actually her cousin, Mordecai. And we're going to see some of that as we have already. The fact that he allowed her to go and be in the king's harem, maybe he couldn't do anything to stop it. But we're introduced to him. Chapter 3, also sticking with the D words, a demonically devious enemy. You remember that from last week? Haman is introduced. And not only a demonically devious enemy, but also his decree of destruction of the Jews. We're going to come back and look at that. He hated the Jews. And then today we come to one of the most significant parts of the book of Esther. It's all significant in the providence of God, but it could be one of the, the, the most significant passages in all of the Bible, a defining moment and a decision to become an unlikely deliverer. Now, I... I am so pleased one of, our <clears throat> one of our young people, one of our children came up today 
and reminded me of some of the things that we've been talking about this last week. And he asked me, Pastor Marty, how are you doing? Matthias, you asked that a minute ago. And I said, I'm doing well. How are you? He said, everything is proceeding according to plan. <laughs> Way to go, Matthias. I, I tell you, that, that, that is a theme. Now, that's hard. Isn't it hard for some of you sitting there going through what you're going through saying, Really? Everything is proceeding according to plan? Let me share with you. You can write down these two verses, but I want you to see something else that you need to inject into your understanding of the providence of God. Remember, sovereignty says that God has a plan. Providence says that it's going to be accomplished. He's going to work it out. He will see to it that it's going to happen. But let's plug in another thing that, that we need desperately when we think about, when we study about the providence of God, and that is, here's a verse. I'm going to show you two verses. This is a big word. I'm not even sure if I can say it without stumbling over it. It's the incomprehensibility of God. I made it through. Let's, let's try that again. The incomprehensibility of God. I practiced on that this week. While God has come close to us, he's made himself known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from the New Testament. There is still that truth, and you've seen this verse over and over again, and we need to pack it into our understanding, particularly to make it I said this in my prayer, more than just objective, we need to, to make it subjective, something that we're living out. God says, beloved, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declared the Lord, or your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, a follow-up verse to that found in Deuteronomy 29 29 gives us some hope about the incomprehensibility of God. The secret things that you've been trying to figure out in your situation, some of you, belong to God. That's God's territory. But here's what he's given to you, and we're going to see this borne out today in a young lady who really didn't have a clue of what was going on. She didn't know the secret things of God, but the things that were revealed were for her. And it's the same way with you. This today could be a defining moment in your life. Just as it was in this chapter for Queen Esther. So have you got that? Sovereignty, providence, a new word today, incomprehensibility of God. Don't think we can figure him out. That's why he's God, and you're not. Let's jump in and start with Esther chapter 4, verse 1. We're just going to read through this. You see I've got several points there, sub-points uh, of this, and some of those are going to be very quick. Some of those we're going to stop and park on and, and just try to draw out some applications for us. So let's look at the first one. You see it right there on your outline. The reality of distress 
and the appropriateness of lamentations. Lamentation. Not the book, the, the, the emoting, the emotions that come about. The reality of distress and the appropriateness of lamentation. Let's read this. You follow along. Chapter 4 of Esther, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, what had been done? Let's, let's go back to chapter 3 and just read very quickly with me. Uh, verse 8. This is what brought about this visceral emoting, this lamentation from Mordecai. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different than those of every other people. I double underlined that because that's true. And they do not keep the king's laws. That's a half-truth. And a half-truth presented as a whole truth is an untruth. So Haman is, is, is weaving together this, this hatred, this racial hatred of an entire population, weaving half-truths together, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Verse 9, if it please the king... Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. So Mordecai tore his clothes. Now, I don't think that was a fashion statement. It is today, sometimes. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance, verse 2, of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. You ever wonder why? Kings didn't want to be brought down. That's why you, you never hear, and all through the ages, have you ever heard of a court mourner? No, you hear, you hear of court jesters. They wanted to be made happy. They didn't want to be weighted down with the cares of what was happening around them. Verse 3, and in every providence, province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So here's Mordecai. He's weeping bitterly, crying out with a loud voice. So here's the question. Is that okay? Now, let's bring it. You can apply this to Mordecai, but I want you to apply it to you. Is it okay to weep and to cry loudly and bitterly to lament a situation in your life and still trust the providence of God? I hope you believe that. That lamentation does not negate your belief 
in what God is doing. Is God really overseeing everything? Can you have a firm, I'm going to ask it again, can you have a firm belief in God's providence and still grieve and lament over evil? Not just your own, but, but also the evil in a culture that we live in. Listen, if, and, and there are a lot of Christians who, they'll say they believe it, but let somebody suffer pain or loss, or betrayal, or any one of the, the, the things, the number of things that you and I experience, interruption of your plans, and sometimes we respond to those people as if, oh, you shouldn't lament, don't you trust the providence of God? One of my favorite studies, and, and I encourage you to do this, I'm going to show you this, this first one. We'll come back. I want you to remember this. There are certain psalms, there are about five or six of them that could be called psalms of complaint. The first one that we see is, is Psalm 13. And in it, the psalmist, David, is lamenting. And I'll tell you what, when you read on into the other psalms of complaint, sometimes it you're kind of taken aback. Did he really just say that to God? Listen to what he was lamenting. How hurt he was. Have you ever felt like this? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? There are Christians who feel forgotten by God. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all day long? And this could go with Mordecai. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It, it takes a, a person steeped, and that's why, that's why this study, we're taking a chapter at a time to go through this book of Esther and every week talk about the providence of God. It, it, it takes a Christian steeped in a proper understanding of the providence of God to be able to say, Lord, this thing is from you. Job did. He, he lost it all. I mean, really, we, we did a study of the, the book of Job. He lost it all. Shall we receive? His wife was, oh boy. His wife was not faithful to him, at least at this point. We don't know because we don't hear about her from, from here on out. Now, to her, to her credit, she too had lost everything. So she says, just get it over with, curse God and die. And he says to her, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? This is gutsy praying. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord in all this. Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
so it's okay. If you're going through something and the pain is still fresh, it's okay to lament. Do you hear that? In fact, I, I'm going to question your whole emotional state if you can't lament and grieve over something that is painful. But it's going to be different, please hear this, than someone, even a Christian, who is just a complainer or a malcontent. Are you, are you tracking with me? Have you ever just been a complainer or a malcontent as a follower of Christ? And how do you know the difference? I'll share with you from Psalm 13. You saw that a minute ago in the first couple of verses where he was crying out. But here's the thing that you're going to see in all of these psalms of complaint. The, the, the writer, the person who is so deeply grieved and so, is, so deeply hurt and has lamented, they always come back with an affirmation. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because in spite of these things that I just lamented over, he has dealt bountifully with me. So, just, just real quick, we're going to get to it in a minute. Was Mordecai a lamenter who believed in the providence of God? Or was he just a complainer and a malcontent? What do you think? Let the Word of God answer that question because from what he did in verse 1, drop down to verse 14. And he shows his affirmation that he believes in the providence of God. He says this, we'll read this in a moment again. For if you keep silent in this time, look at this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He had no clue where that was going to come from or who it was going to come from. He was just confident that in the midst of the distress, God would bring about a deliverance. Okay, look, look at me for a minute. Would, would it help you with what you're going through or what you've gone through, if you haven't gone through anything recently, Think of a, a, a time when you really, really struggled. Would it help if you knew the delightful end from that point in time where you're grieving? Would it help you? Yeah. I had a vivid uh, illustration of this last week. It was one of those aha moments. For those of you who do not know, I am an Arkansas Razorback fan. Thank you, Ron. Uh, now, and I talk with people, sometimes I talk with some of you, and my, my one line, here it is, if my spiritual fortunes depend on how the Razorbacks do on Saturday, I'm in big trouble, okay? So are all of you. But last week, now we lost yesterday, it was a good game, I'm proud of my hogs, okay? Last week, 
LSU game. It was on Saturday night. Now, I go to bed early on Saturday night. So here we are. I'm right after the third quarter started, and I'm, I'm getting ready for bed, and Jan texts me. I thought it was over. I'd been looking at the TV. Have you ever yelled at the TV? Does that do any good? Yeah, it does, okay? Okay, so Jan texts me. I'm in the bathroom, and she texts me, said, we just scored a touchdown. So I, you know, get clothes on again, and I come into the other room, and, man, I, I got to go to bed because I get up early. So I did, not knowing how things were going to turn out. And it didn't look good with LSU. didn't look good. The next morning, I wish I could say the first thing that I did when I got into my office was open the Bible and look at my notes. I looked at my phone to see the final score. Yes. Now, here's where I had this revelation. Okay, so all morning long, I knew that we had won, but we had recorded from the third quarter on. We had recorded it so that I could come home last Sunday and watch the game. And here's where I had this revelation. When I was watching it, not knowing that we were going to win, I was uptight. I, literally, my heart was beating fast. I, are we, what's this play going to do and all the rest of that? When I was watching the rerun on Sunday afternoon, I was totally relaxed. Yep, they got sacked. But I know they're going to win. And I really did. I told Chan, I, 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 if, if we as Christians could get a view of the providence of God. Now, we don't know the end, but he does. And for a believer, listen to me, for a believer, the illusion of defeat is a lie because Jesus has already won. And we may suffer from time to time, and it may be grievous, our suffering but Christ will not be defeated by any ungodly or capricious leader who lived then or who lives now. He will not be defeated by any evil ideologues pushing their destructive agendas on our identity. And there will come a day when they will all bow the knee to King Jesus. And we will know him because we will be conformed into his image. So in the meantime, remain vigil, remain sober-minded into what is taking place. All around us, in your life, with God's providence in view. Second point, verse 4, the awakening of concern and compassion. Now, you got to see this. It's been five years. You may not realize it. It's been five years since Esther became queen. She's been in the royal palace and basically cut off 
from what's going on outside the palace. So she has no clue. She's clueless. But there's an awakening of concern. Watch this. The awakening of concern and compassion. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, that's her attendants, the queen was deeply distressed because she heard about Mordecai. And he was grieving. He was lamenting. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Now, she did what she thought was best. And sometimes that's what we do. We just send somebody some new clothes and hope that it's going to fix the problem in the heart. And it doesn't. And I think it's instructive that Mordecai said it's not going to fix the problem. What is the problem? Listen, we live in a day, and it hasn't, it hasn't changed since the beginning. We live in a day, in case this has escaped you, in case you've been living in isolation, we live in a day when the enemy of our souls has one of two agendas for us as believers. The first one, if he can pull it off, is extermination. That's what he was trying to do, okay? That's what's going on in North Korea. It's what's going on in Iran, Afghanistan. It's what's going on in other parts of the world, and from time to time, we pray for those persecuted Christians, and we realize, but we don't just need to make our prayer for persecuted Christians once a year. It needs to be something that is on our minds and hearts, because that's the first agenda of the enemy. He wants to exterminate, but when he can't exterminate, like in our culture right here, what's his, the second thrust? What's he going to do? Watch this in the church. Infiltrate and assimilate. He wants to weave his way into the church, especially conservative groups like the SBC, kind of still, or the PCA, kind of still. He's, he's going to infiltrate and he's going to seek to assimilate. Anybody here a Star Trek fan? Do you remember the, the arch enemy? What was it? The Borg. The Borg. Not the Borgs. The Borg. <laughs> okay, CJ, you, you know. You know. Do you remember the strategy of the Borg? It's the same thing. This, this, is, what the, this is what the enemy says to you, church. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Do you hear those messages all around you? Again, the affairs of this world seem to be under the dominion of the prince of darkness, but we've got to remember this is all a part of God's divine plan. Let's move on. Verses 5 through 8. So, she, she becomes aware. Now, she also discovers that this is an impossible dilemma. Put quotes around the word impossible. Verses 5 through 8. Then Esther called for Hatak. Guess what his name means? This is kind of just one of those interesting things that we don't have time to 
pursue. His name means truth. Verity. Truth. Boy, it is, it is so important that Esther never talks to Mordecai. She is talking to an intermediary, and it's so important that he gets it right. So, she called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had just been appointed to attend her, had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact sum of money. He's going back into detail from chapter 3 that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decrees issued in Susa for their destruction, not just the spoken word, but the written word, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her, now watch this, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. What was Esther going to do with that information? This is an impossible situation. Let's move on to verse 9. This, this is where she struggles. Now, if, if you don't read this carefully, you're not going to see the struggle. You're going to move on to the, if I perish, I perish. There was a genuine struggle. And let me just say to you, as a Christian, there will always be in your mind, in your heart, teenagers listen to me, older people listen to me, there will always be a struggle with the cost of doing the right thing. And that's what Esther was faced with. She found herself on the horns of a dilemma, if you want to put it that way. She wanted to do the right thing, but there was a huge risk. Listen to it. Verse 9, Hatak went to Esther and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, look at her struggle. All of the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that around King Xerxes were, were guards who had axes. And if you approached the king without being invited, it was off with your head. Unless the king did something. To be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, now watch what she's doing. She, she's pulling back. She's saying, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm between a rock and a hard place here. As for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. In, Est in Esther's mind, remember, she was the king's favorite until 30 days ago. The king wasn't alone in the evenings. Esther thought, really, she thought I'm going to die. I'm no longer his favorite. It's been a month since I have been invited to go in to the king. Verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Now, Mordecai shows some gumption here. 
And I'm calling this simply a call to arms. Verse 13, look at it. Three things that are going on here. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. See, up to this time, Xerxes does not know she's a Jew. But Mordecai is telling her, this doesn't, if you think you're going to pull back and not say anything, it's going to be found out, you're a Jew. You're not going to escape. You're going to be killed. Then in that verse we read just a few moments ago, this strong belief in God's providence, if you keep silent, if you keep silent at this time, this is stunning. Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Deliverance would come. It wouldn't come through her. And then, then he really drives to the point, asking the question, Esther, what if divine providence is at work to place you where you are at this exact moment? And who knows, second part of verse 14, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, she was afraid and unsure at the beginning. Do you get that? Did she, did she have the idea that she was going to save her own skin? Don't we all? When we're asked to do something that's difficult, isn't the first thing we think about saving our own skin, our own reputation? We don't want loss. And yet Jesus, you jump forward 450 some odd years and he says basically the same thing. Look, guys, the, the person who wants to preserve his life is going to lose it. If, if all you're doing is looking at self and you're trying to preserve you and yours and all the rest of that, but whoever loses his life, and we know that it's for his sake, will keep it. You know, it, it's shocking. Esther was told, did, did you pick that up, this up? Esther was told that she was not indispensable to God. God wants to use you, but you're not indispensable to God. And if you don't do this, deliverance will come from another place. You'll perish. And I read that this week, and I thought, how many times has he come to me and there's a difficult decision, maybe to you too. And you balk or you pull back. Somebody said, a preacher said, God is going to do what he has planned to do. Wouldn't it be sad that you missed out on the joy of being a part of what he is doing? Let, let me just say one more thing to you. I think I shared this a while back. I heard it from a lunch that I had, I was privileged to have, with John MacArthur. And several people got together with him when he was coming through the city, and a question was asked, how do we encourage our, our children, our grandchildren, in these days? And he said, and I, I will say it like this, I'll extend it, 
Church, stop cursing your children and your grandchildren. What if they have been placed, listen, what if, if they have been placed in this time, in this place, just as Esther, for such a time as this? So, stop saying, I'm okay because I'm checking out pretty soon. I feel sorry for our children and our grandchildren. Stop cursing our kids with that. Maybe God has placed them here for such a time as this. Let's look at the last thing, okay? Verses 15 through 17. This is a defining moment of a firm and reasonable resolve. Every word is important in that. Defining moment. It's a combination of responsibility and duty. Now watch what's happened to Esther. She's moved from uninvolved to showing compassion to being willing to risk her life to save her people. In other words, she grew in her faith and so can you. She realized that it would be better to die being obedient than to live her life being disobedient. It's kind of like the story of the Roman soldier. He was going off on a mission and somebody said to him, this mission is a fatal mission. You, you will not return alive. And his words to that person, something that every one of us needs to internalize. That Roman soldier said, it is necessary for me to go. It is not necessary for me to live. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think her fear went away? I don't. I think she gained courage. And courage is not just this going in, listen, with your guns blazing. Courage and defining moments are in the everyday, mundane decisions of life. I read some commentators who at this point, when, when Esther said, well, let me just read this, and then you'll see. Then Esther told, verse 15, them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews. By the way, she found herself living in community. This is a whole nother sermon, living in community. She called in the troops. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Does that remind you of any other kind of three days and three nights kind of thing? Yeah. She's a type. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She had come to a place where she believed the providence of God. Deliverance would come even if she didn't make it. I read a, a, at least two commentators who said that Esther was really not all that spiritual here. Now, there was a time in the past when she struggled, all right? But these commentators said she was 
This was fatalism. If I perish, I perish. It's just the way the things are. I don't think so. And, and, and I thought to myself, okay, if it's fatalism, then Esther's theme song would have been, que Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That is not Christian providence. I think it is closer to the song that we finished up our song time singing with God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. So, in my estimation, Mordecai is not a whiner. He's not a malcontent. He believed God will deliver. Esther was not a coward. She said, if I perish, I perish. And just like the Roman soldier, it is necessary that I go. It is not necessary that I live. She was willing to do something. Now watch this, that every one of you, we're going to apply this very specifically in a minute. If you've heard this sermon and you've, you, you've heard about Esther and now's the time to imitate her, not in chapter 2, but in chapter 4. Because she was willing to stand in the gap. That's what God's looking for. You ever notice that God is really, he, he's never needed a crowd. He is looking for a man, for a woman, for a young person, for a teenager. He's looking for a man or a woman who will stand in the gap. So for you, what does that mean? I, I don't know. It could mean that you will be an Esther, that you will stand before a king, and that an entire population will depend on your decision. It might be. But here's what, I, here, here's what I really believe that it means far, far more. It means that the defining moment right now and then tomorrow morning when you wake up is to say, I am here, Lord. Whatever it is you've got for me to do, I will do my duty. Do, do you know what that might mean today or tomorrow morning? It might mean that you say to a, a loved one, I love you, when you don't feel like it. That, that could be a defining moment. It could be that you will say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That, for some people, could be one of the greatest defining moments in a relationship. It could mean that you will say enough, that you will stand up against those who are in error. It could mean, and I could just go on and on, to be truthful, to be vulnerable. It means, it could mean that you get up and go to work in a hostile environment. It might mean that you come to the place where you admit, I can't do this alone. I'm willing to change. 
That song that we were singing a minute ago, I love one of the lines, take courage now, you fearful saints. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Fast forward 450 years to another scene where there was a struggle. And the Son of God said, If I perish, I perish. Not my will, but yours, Father. And he was willing to stand in the gap. Religion can't stand in the gap. Church membership can't stand in the gap. Turning over a new leaf can't stand in the gap. No one, not a, a, a neighbor, not a friend, not a family member can stand in the gap. There, gap. There is one God and one mediator also between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who laid down his life. And he did die. But you know the end of the story. Only to be raised on the third day so that he could offer the gift of deliverance to his people. Let's go back. Defining moments, the, most defi the fundamental defining moment you can make right now if you are not in Christ is to say, I see my sin before a holy God. I am doomed to destruction, but I see an intercessor, an intermediary named Jesus who died according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He's ascended into heaven, and He is offering the free gift of eternal life to those who will receive it. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a reminder of that. It's a symbol wherein we, we invite all of those who are in Christ. If you're not a Christian... The Lord's Supper is not for you. But if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, and not a perfect one, by the way, that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Not your perfection, but His. And His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Father, I thank You that You lead us through Your Word. You teach us. Uh, a young lady probably about the age of 20 who grappled with doubt and struggled with decision, do I save my life? I'm going to lose it anyway. Or do I give my life trusting in the providence of God? And she did, and God used her. And Lord, the reality is that there are people in this room today that need to make that commitment that they, they need to come to this defining moment that will truly define them as a follower of Christ. By turning away from sin, by embracing Jesus and His finished work on the cross. And then for those of us who know you, as we take uh, symbolically the picture of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ in a few moments, our prayer is that you would once again remind us of that incredible sacrifice and then help us to go out 
and live out the implications of that in our families and where we work and where we go to school. Lord, everywhere we go. So I thank you for that and pray now as we segue into this portion of our celebration of the life of Christ that you would help us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.